Hello guys, hi everybody. Hello everybody and welcome to Eddie Hurst podcast version of The War of the Worlds, chapter 17. The Thunder Child, the final one of book one. We've had 16 chapters, four interludes, one and a half holiday specials if you're being generous. And here we are, the final chapter of the first part of The War of the Worlds. And boy, is it a doozy! Everything's been leading up to this. I mean, both literally and also metaphorically. This is the face-off between mankind's highest technical achievement in war against the Martians' fierce tripods. Hello, by the way, this is the show where we take a chapter of H.G. Wells' uh, seminal book, The War of the Worlds, and cut it up, mix it together, add in a few jokes, add a comedy song in, and bring some of my personal comedy friends to help bring the highly regarded sci-fi novel to life. In your ears, right now! If this is the first time you're listening, I mean, thank you so much for coming along. Please do subscribe and rate the podcast. But also, you've, like like I said before, you've missed 16 chapters, 4 interludes, and 1.5 holiday specials. Go, go back, go listen to them, and then listen to this, because there's a lot to catch you up on. But for everybody else, hey, this is the chapter, the famous song chapter, you know it, the Jeff Wayne's musical version. And it's not just that, the Thunder Child has a huge part in the pop culture history of this story, the military power of Earth against the Martians. There's even a spin-off book called The Last Days of the Thunder Child, which kind of has some spoilers in, uh, but it's also an interesting look at the story if you wanted it from an even bleaker perspective. So we're going to get into that in a few minutes. Joining us again is Jen Ives. You'll remember her as being the voice of Miss and Mrs. Elphinstone. She has come back. She's going to talk to us about gender within sci-fi because, as you'll hear and hear, the boat's referred to as she, the Martians are referred to as he. Neither of them do we know the gender of or or what they choose their gender to be. And and to me, it just seems a bit weird. And also, it's an excuse for me to talk to friends and people I I want to get to know a little bit more. So Jen Ives is a fantastic comedian who hosts the podcast Peak Trans and also has a number of videos where she discusses trans issues so we talk more about that within the episode and also uh, i've got a little quiz for it where we see what are the trans sci-fi icons before we begin as well we've got a new feature i know it's the last episode of this series but we've got a new feature called hg news hg news this is where we talk about the latest news in the world of hg wells now some of you will say eddie hg wells has been dead since 1946 what's he up to well it's not what he's up to, it's what his legacy has lived on into. So, um, some of you have been in touch to let me know about this, and thank you very much to John Embry and Tom O'Callaghan for uh, linking me into this article. What you may have seen, it, it was in The Guardian, it was in a few news spots, is that they have created a £2 coin to celebrate H.G. Wells' work, to celebrate the master of science fiction, and what better way to celebrate him than by getting the coin wrong in, in, in ways that is astounding. They've gotten it wrong in three ways. So, the first one is that uh, it's got the tripod on it, obviously. You know, if I've learned anything from all of the uh, Facebook groups I've been in for War of the... You know, if I know anything about all of the fan groups I'm in for War of the Worlds, it is, of course, that the tripods are the main focus. Um, and now, the word tripod, uh, we, we know, you know, I, I've, we've done a whole deep dive on tri, meaning three. Un, uni, duni, tri. That's it, I think. Um, and uh, three, it's three, innit? You've got a trio, three. Tripod. They've decided to give the tripod four legs, which is one extra, which in some ways is, is better, you know? It's like, hey, have an extra leg, but it's not necessarily accurate. Um, not only that, but uh, the, I, I didn't know this one, to be fair, but the Invisible Man, uh, people were annoyed that, uh, one, you can see him, stupid, uh, and two, uh, he's wearing a top hat. Apparently, he doesn't wear a top hat. I'm, that seems more tedious than the, the four legs. The four legs really seems an oversight. But last of all, to top it off, uh, what do you want to do? You know what? He was so great uh, having a way with words. He was a man of letters. What we'll do is we'll give him a little quote. So they went for a good book is the warehouse of ideas um which which is it sounds nice doesn't it doesn't it warehouse of good ideas oh yeah i go there what's it full of like a like a cup holder that you can put wherever you want you know you can take it with you so it, it, it collapses um so like it could be magnetic or, or have suckers and so if you've got like a drink or something and you want to put it on your trout there could be other ideas that's not the not the bit to focus on um and that sounds nice but of course that is not actually what he said that's not 
Uh, that's not a real quote by him. Uh, it, it's just something that you find if you Google and don't do any more research than that. Uh, and that that so the actual quote for him is good good books are the warehouses of ideals, which is very very different. You go into a warehouse of ideals, uh, you get a lot more idealists. Generally, you get a lot more uh, ideas that aren't shackled by reality. Um, I'm just saying it's a different experience. You know what I mean? Like if you order a warehouse of ideals, you're getting something different to a warehouse of ideas. I mean, similar, but not not the same. Uh, and it just makes me think, like, like maybe I should be designing this coin, right? Like, I've done a good amount of research on the life and times of H.G. Wells. I clearly know that tripod should have three legs. I probably wouldn't have even put the Invisible Man in. I just would have been like, why, why so this blank bit? It's Invisible Man, isn't it? Uh, what do you... Th let me do it. I think I should do it. I, uh, I can't do any worse. Can't do any worse, can I? HG News! Okay, so let's get into the Thunder Child. Before we do, please do subscribe and rate the podcast. It helps other people find it. The other day, we got into the top 20 Belgian uh, Belgian science fiction things, so that's that's amazing. And that's thanks to you guys uh, subscribing and rating. It, it helps with visibility, so thank you so much. Um, and also, feel free to follow me and get in touch. If you see any more HG Wells or War of the Worlds or Martian-based stories, drop me a message on Twitter, at Eddie Hurst, Facebook, Eddiehurst or Instagram Eddiehurst or even an email. Why not? Uh, Eddiehurst at gmail.com. Anyway, without further ado, here we go. The last chapter of book one. Chapter 17 The Thunder Child. Had the Martians aimed only at destruction, they might on Monday have annihilated the entire population of London as it spread itself slowly through the home counties. <laughs> Okay, let's hear a shout out for the home counties. Anybody who's not from Britain, uh, it, it's like a, a county, it's sort of like a small province. It's the equivalent of a state in the US, I guess, but much smaller and with a less, much less control over their own rules. Uh, anyway, here we go. Shout out to Berkshire, Buckinghamshire, Essex, Hertfordshire, Kent, Surrey, Essex. That's that's all of that's all of them. After that, I, I don't know what they're just count. They're just counties. Home counties are just the ones surrounding London. I guess they're like away counties. Away counties. Not only along the road through Barnet, but also through Edgware and Waltham Abbey, and along the roads eastward to Southend and Shoebriness, and south of the Thames to Deal and Broadstairs, pulled the same frantic route. If one could have hung that June morning in a balloon in the blazing blue above London, every northward and eastward road running out of the tangled maze of streets would have seemed strippled black with the streaming fugitives, each dot a human agony of terror and physical distress. I have set forth at length in the last chapter my brother's account of the road through Chipping Barnet, in order that my readers may realise how that swarming of black dots appeared to one of those concerned. Never before in the history of the world had such a mass of human beings moved and suffered altogether. The legendary hosts of Goths and Huns, the hugest armies Asia had ever seen, would have been but a drop in that current. This is a code red alert. All experiments are to be stopped and evacuation immediately. Test subject has overpowered with data overload. This is your five minute warning. The plant will self-destruct. because you probably know a guy from them, Attila the Hun, that's his army. They were one of the largest armies that have ever existed in the world. He actually invented the postal service, so that's how widely spanned the empire that the Huns ruled was. Often they're regarded as barbarians who just used to invade and pillage, and sure they did invade and pillage, but also they did a lot of empire building that is uh, underrated in the, in the history. Next, we've got the Goths. 
They were a Germanic peoples, uh, similar to the Huns. They sort of had this uh, notoriety for for invading areas very quickly with lots of people. They are most famous probably for sacking the Roman Empire. They sacked Rome in 1410, uh, which is quite a big thing because that was when the Roman Empire was uh, was big boys. Big boy Roman Empire. So you've got the Goths there and you've got the Huns and they were the largest armies uh, that Asia and I suppose Europe, if you're calling them the Goths, have ever seen. So it's just to put in a mind lots of people. Uh, that's what HG is doing there. Now I must wreak havoc on those who experimented on me! And this was no disciplined march. It was a stampede. A stampede gigantic and terrible. Without order and without goal. Six million people unarmed and unprovisioned. Driving headlong. It was the beginning of the rout of civilization, Of the massacre of mankind. Directly below him, the balloonist would have seen the network of streets far and wide. Houses, churches, squares, crescents, gardens already derelict. Spread out like a huge map. And in the southward blotted. Over Ealing, Richmond, Wimbledon, it would have seemed as if some monstrous pen had flung ink upon the chart. I say, Monty, very good of you to take me up in your hot air balloon. Oh, no problem at all, Gerald. Have a look at all the views. But, my word, what on earth is that there? Oh, what? Oh, my goodness. Well, it looks like a, a monster pen. Yes, indeed, a monster pen. Good heavens. And what is it? What? Well, it looks like it's flinging ink. Flinging ink? Why, we haven't seen a monster pen like that for about three years since that accident at the nuclear power plant with the pen. Yes, it ruined Arthur's picnic. Good job we're up in the sky, Monty. Yes, absolutely, Gerald. Steadily, incessantly, each black splash grew and spread, shooting out ramifications this way and that, now banking itself against rising ground, now pouring swiftly over a crest into a newfound valley, exactly as a gout of ink would spread itself across blotting paper. And beyond, over the blue hills that rise southward of the river, the glittering Martians went to and fro, calmly and methodically spreading their poison cloud over this patch of country, and then over that, laying it again with their steam jets when it had served its purpose, and taking possession of the conquered country. They do not seem to have aimed at extermination so much as at complete demoralization and destruction of any opposition. Sounds to me a lot like school. Oi oi! But seriously, this is a classic strategy of any invading, colonizing force. Uh, just if you wanted something serious there. They exploded any stores of powder they came upon, cut every telegraph, and wrecked the railways here and there. They were hamstringing mankind. I mean, I've pulled a hamstring. I know it's painful, but what an understatement to describe what they're doing to London. They've pulled our hammies! They seemed in no hurry to extend the field of their operations, and did not come beyond the central part of London all that day. It is possible that a very considerable number of people in London stuck to their houses throughout Monday morning. Certain it is that many died at home, suffocated by the black smoke. Like, look, I know I'm being kind of tedious here, but I would really like to know how they actually managed to do that. Like... Because we know the narrator and the curate hid in a house, and that's what kept them safe from the black smoke. You know, like, and we've seen that it, it, it lands on surfaces and then it then isn't as useful once it, it lasts there. So how did they get it inside the homes? How did they do that? What, did they stick it down a chimney? I mean, that feels like something really worth talking about. I mean, I know, I know we, we, we're yet to get to the Thunderchild boat, and there's a limited amount of time that we have in this chapter, but how did they get it? Did they... So they have a little tube that they stick through a door or something? I mean, what is, what is it? If you know, let me, let me like, get in touch. Let me know. Because all I can think is that they've just been spending all day trying to, trying to send little cylinders of black smoke into, into chimneys. And that just doesn't feel right, you know? Anyway, get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or send me an email. Until about midday, the Pool of London was an astonishing scene. Steamboats and shipping of all sorts lay there. Tempted by the enormous sums of money offered by fugitives. You have turned me into a modern Prometheus and now you shall die. Oh, hello everybody. So, the Pool of London, it's a stretch of the River Thames that was navigable by all sorts of boats. So small ships could go in there, large ships, 
It was originally the major port of London, so at this time, most boats would have been able to navigate through here, especially the larger ones that the fugitives will be trying to get onto. Now, excuse me whilst I must destroy the hands that created me! And it is said that many who swam out to these vessels were thrust off with boat hooks and drowned. About one o'clock in the afternoon, the thinning remnant of a cloud of the black vapour appeared between the arches of Blackfriars Bridge. At that, the pool became a scene of mad confusion, fighting and collision. And for some time, a multitude of boats and barges jammed in the northern arch of the Tower Bridge, and the sailors and lightermen had to fight savagely against the people who swarmed upon them from the riverfront. Sounds just like your uh, regular canal on a Saturday night. Oi oi! People were actually clambering down the piers of the bridge from above. When, an hour later, a Martian appeared beyond the clock tower and waded down the river, nothing but wreckage floated above Limehouse. Of the falling of the fifth cylinder, I have presently to tell. The sixth star fell at Wimbledon. My brother, keeping watch beside the women in the chaise in a meadow, saw the green flash of it far beyond the hills. On Tuesday, the little party, still set upon getting across the sea, made its way through the swarming country towards Colchester. The news that the Martians were now in possession of the whole of London was confirmed. They had been seen at Highgate, and even, it was said, at Neesden. But they did not come into my brother's view until the morrow. Right, so that gets us to about 18 Martians, uh, and we, we lost two a few chapters ago, uh, so we've got 16 now. About 16 Martians. Not too bad, Gaul of London. Good for them. That day, the scattered multitudes began to realise the urgent need of provisions. As they grew hungry, the rights of property ceased to be regarded. Farmers were out to defend their cattle shed, granaries, and ripening root crops with arms in their hands. A number of people now, like my brother, had their faces eastward. And there were some desperate souls even going back towards London to get food. These were chiefly people from the northern suburbs, whose knowledge of the black smoke came by hearsay. He heard that about half the members of government had gathered at Birmingham, and that enormous quantities of high explosives were being prepared to be used in automatic mines across the Midland counties. Hey, I'm going to be honest, I think the explaining lad's got a lot on his plate at the moment. Last time I saw him, he was trapped up a uh, clock tower by the big scientific experiment headquarters. Uh, so I thought I'd just answer this one. Automatic mines, it's not exactly clear what he means by this. The, the only sort of automation they had in mines in Victorian times is that they did have automatic coal cutters. So the takeaway is that it's some heavily industrialised mining area and... The mines were really important to Britain at that time because it's one of the major resources that Britain actually has. Um, you know, it provided a lot of jobs, a lot of in employment. So if they're prepared to get rid of them, they're in desperate times. He was also told that the Midland Railway Company had replaced the desertions of the first day's panic, had resumed traffic and was running northward trains from St Albans to relieve the congestion of the home counties. There was also a placard in Chipping Ongar announcing that large stores of flour were available in the northern towns and that within 24 hours, bread would be distributed among the starving people in the neighbourhood. Now how on earth are we to convince the London folk to come up to the north? The Martians are invading, they're running for their lives, of course they're going to head anywhere that's safe. Yes, but, uh, the north. Yes, but it is the north. Hold on, I, I've got it. Yes, we're all ears. Large stores of flour. Yes, absolutely nothing else at all would possibly encourage them to move to the north. Quickly, put it on a placard at Chipping Ongar. But this intelligence did not deter him from the plan of escape he had formed, and the three pressed eastward all day, and heard no more of the bread distribution than this promise. Nor, as a matter of fact, did anyone else hear more of it. Oh, I hope the British government's got some Savlon for that sick burn from HG Wells. That night fell the seventh star, falling upon Primrose Hill. It fell while Miss Elphinstone was watching, for she took that duty alternately with my brother. She saw it. On Wednesday, the three fugitives, they had passed the night in a field of unripe wheat, reached Chelmsford, and there a body of the inhabitants, calling itself the Committee of Public Supply, seized the pony as provisions, and would give nothing in exchange for it but the promise of a share in it the next day. Typical. Less than 24 hours from an invasion, and already there's a cult. And what are they doing? Seizing resources to evenly distribute amongst people? Unbelievable. 
Here there were rumours of Martians attempting, and news of the destruction of Walter Abbey powder mills in a vain attempt to blow up one of the invaders. People were watching for Martians here from the church towers. My brother, very luckily for him as it chanced, preferred to push on at once to the coast rather than wait for food, although all three of them were very hungry. By midday they passed through Tillingham, which, strangely enough, seemed to be quite silent and deserted, save for a few furtive plunderers hunting for food. Near Tillingham, they suddenly came in sight of the sea, and the most amazing crowd of shipping of all sorts that it is possible to imagine. For after the sailors could no longer come up the Thames, they came on to the Essex coast, to Harwich and Walton and Clacton, and afterwards to Farnes and Shoebury to bring off the people. They lay in a huge sickle-shaped curve that vanished into the mist at last towards the Nays. <laughs> Close in shore was a multitude of fishing smacks. English, Scotch, French, Dutch and Swedish. Steam launches from the Thames, yachts, electric boats, and beyond were ships of larger burden. A multitude of filthy colliers, trim merchantmen, cattle ships, passenger boats, petroleum tanks, ocean tramps, and old white transport even. Neat white and grey liners from Southampton and Hamburg. I mean, first off, a shout out for referring to the Scottish as the Scotch, because I am 100% sure they do not appreciate that. Um, secondly, I had a look for what an old white transport was, uh, because all of the others you can kind of guess, like a white and a grey liner, that's a big ocean liner, a passenger boat, a cattle ship is a ship for cattle. But what old white transport is, the only thing I can find is that it's like this big old packet ship. So a packet ship is a sort of like a, like a mail delivery thing. So I'm assuming that's why it, what it's referring to as old white transport is like these old white postal boats so it's, it's an unusual thing there's lots i mean i don't know if you've gotten from the massive list but there's lots of boats of different varieties here and along the blue coast across the black water my brother could make out dimly a dense swarm of boats chaffering with people on the beach a swarm which also extended up the black water almost to malden about a couple of miles out lay an ironclad very low in the water almost to my brother's perception like a waterlogged ship uh, an ironclad is a is a boat that is clad in iron. Ironclad. Big military boat. This was the ram. Thunderchild. It was the only warship in sight. But far away to the right, over the smooth surface of the sea, for that day there was a dead calm, lay a serpent of black smoke to mark the next ironclads of the Channel Fleet, which hovered in an extended line, steam up and ready for action across the Thames estuary during the course of the Martian conquest, vigilant and yet powerless to prevent it. At the sight of the sea, Mrs Elphinstone, in spite of the insurances of her sister-in-law, gave way to panic. She had never been out of England before. She would rather die than trust herself friendless in a foreign country, and so forth. She seemed, a poor woman, to imagine that the French and Martians might prove very similar. Sounds a lot like the voting general British public nowadays. Oi, oi! She had been growing increasingly hysterical, fearful and depressed during the two days' journeyings. Her great idea was to return to Stanmore. Things had always been well and safe at Stanmore. She would find George at Stanmore. It was with the greatest difficulty they could get her down to the beach, where presently my brother succeeded in attracting the attention of some men on a paddle steamer from the Thames. They sent a boat and drove a bargain for £36 for the three. The steamer was going, these men said, to Ostend. Aye, 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 £36. If you put that into the inflation calculator we have, that's £4,769.16. pence. I mean, the 16 pence isn't much to get bothered about, but the rest of it, Jesus. It was about two o'clock when my brother, having paid their fares at the gangway, found himself safely aboard the steamboat with his charges. There was food aboard, albeit at exorbitant prices, and the three of them contrived to eat a meal on one of the seats forward. There were already a couple of score of passengers aboard. 
just wanted to dip in and explain uh, what the word score means here. That um, it, It's an old phrase for 20. So a score would be 20 of a thing. So a couple of score is uh, is, is two 20s. That's 40. Uh, yes, I can do maths. Uh, thank you very much. Some of whom had expended their last money in securing a passage. But the captain lay off the Blackwater until five in the afternoon, picking up passengers until the seated decks were even dangerously crowded. He would probably have remained longer had it not been for the sound of guns that began about that hour in the south. As if in answer, the ironclad seaward fired a small gun and hoisted a string of flags. A jet of smoke sprang out of her funnels. I mean, I don't know about you, but is it even a naval war if there aren't a string of flags? Exactly. Some of the passengers were of the opinion that this firing came from shoebriness, until it was noticed that it was growing louder. At the same time, Far away in the southeast, the masts and upper works of three ironclads rose one after the other out of the sea, beneath clouds of black smoke. But my brother's attention speedily reverted to the distant firing in the south. He fancied he saw a column of smoke rising out of the distant grey haze. The little steamer was already flapping her way eastward of the big crescent of shipping, and the low Essex coast was growing blue and hazy when a Martian appeared, small and faint in the remote distance advancing along the muddy coast from the direction of foulness. Keeping up the grand tradition of uh, British towns having ridiculous names, foulness is, uh, is, is the name of a place. It's not, not a metaphor or, or anything or a state of mind. I mean, may, maybe it is a state of mind, but for the purposes of this, foulness is a, is a town on the south coast, not a nest of foul. At that, the captain on the bridge swore at the top of his voice with fear and anger at his own delay. And the paddles seemed infected with his terror. Every soul aboard stood at the bulwarks or on the seats of the steamer and stared at that distant shape, higher than the trees or church towers inland, and advancing with a leisurely parody of a human stride. I'm a Martian and I'm walking like a stupid human. It was the first Martian my brother had seen, and he stood more amazed than terrified, watching this titan advancing deliberately towards the shipping, wading farther and farther into the water as the coast fell away. Then, far away beyond the crouch, came another, striding over some stunted trees, and then yet another, still farther off, wading deeply through a shiny mud flap that seemed to hang halfway up between sea and sky. They were all stalking seaward as if to intercept the escape of the multitudinous vessels that were crowded between foulness and the naze, in spite of the throbbing exertions of the engines of the little paddle boat and the pouring foam that her wheels flung behind her, she receded with terrifying slowness from this ominous advance. Glancing northwestward, my brother saw the large crescent of shipping already writhing with the approaching terror, one ship passing behind another, another coming round from broadside to end on. Steamships whistling and giving off volumes of steam, sails being let out, launches rushing hither and thither. He was so fascinated by this and by the creeping danger away to the left that he had no eyes for anything seaward. And then a swift movement of the steamboat, she had suddenly come round to avoid being run down, flung him headlong from the seat upon which he was standing. There was a shouting all about him, a trampling of feet, and a cheer that seemed to be answered faintly. The steamboat lurched and rolled him over upon his hands. He sprang to his feet and saw to starboard, uh, not a hundred yards from their healing, pitching boat, a vast iron bulk like the blade of a plough tearing through the water, tossing it on either side in huge waves of foam that leaped towards the steamer, flinging her paddles helplessly in the air, and then sucking her deck down almost to the waterline. A douche of spray blinded my brother for a moment. Oh, behave, guys, he doesn't mean it like that. When his eyes were clear again, he saw the monster had passed and was rushing landward. Big iron upperworks rose out of this headlong structure, and from that twin funnel works projected and spat a smoking blast shot with fire. It was the torpedo ram, the Thunder Child, steaming headlong, coming to the rescue of the threatened shipping. Please save our shipping! We've already paid postage and packaging! Keeping his footing on the heaving deck by clutching the bulwarks, my brother looked past this charging leviathan at the Martians again, and he saw the three of them now close together, and standing so far out to the sea that their tripod supports were almost entirely submerged. Thus sunken, and seen in remote perspective, 
they appeared far less formidable than the huge iron bulk in whose wake the steamer was pitching so helplessly. It would seem that they were regarding this new antagonist with astonishment. To their intelligence, it may be. The giant was even such another as themselves. The Thunderchild fired no gun, but simply drove full speed towards them. It was probably her not firing that enabled her to get so near the enemy as she did. They did not know what to make of her. One shell, and they would have sent her to the bottom forthwith with the heat ray. First things first, I mean, let's take a moment out and, and what a scene we have here. A, a brave vessel, not even firing a gun, just deciding to bash a Martian in. Well, it's great. It's like, oh, what, what are you going to do with all these uh, advanced people? I'm going to bash their brains in. Fine, can't argue with that. I mean, they didn't, they literally didn't, I mean, no, they didn't, it's not they literally didn't see it coming, because they literally did see it, they metaphorically didn't see it coming. Yeah, that's what I was going for. But, one thing that I find weird, uh, not, not, it's it's no fault of HG here, um, it's just that boats are referred to as she, um, and we, we spoke uh, last chapter as well about how weird it is that the Martians were, were called he, like somebody had just decided that, um, and this idea of gendering uh, bug, bugged me a bit. I mean, it's weird, isn't it? What does a boat need to have a gender? Who's, who's, who's that concerned that a boat needs to be gendered? Right? And a car, and that sort of stuff, and it's always she. Like, I don't, under don't understand it. And within sci-fi, uh, there's a lot of playing with the idea of gender and the social construct of it and, and how we approach it. So I sat down with one of my personal comedy friends, Jen Ives, who hosts the podcast Peak Trans, which is all about trans issues and, and obviously, by its very nature, deals with a lot of the ideas of gender. So I thought she'd be the perfect guest on to have a little chat about this and also do a quiz about who we think are the trans icons of sci-fi. So here we go. Sure, sure. And, and and I'll just preface by saying that, like, I'm not um, an expert in Absolutely. like biology and stuff. Like, I'm a comedian and uh, I'm also kind of dumb as, as well. Sure. Um, and, you know, I'm the first person to say that. But, you know, I do have a lived experience and all this kind of stuff. And, and it is, you know, I've had to learn certain things because of uh, the fact that my existence seems to always be called into question lately. Um, yeah. So, so I guess like the simplest, and it, and it is a big issue, as as you probably know. But the simplest way I can put it is that you know the 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 up to date scientific consensus. I mean, this you're talking about sci-fi. So let's actually look at what the scientists do, like what biologists actually use to um, look at these things. You know, it is it is um, academically, and it has been known for a long time that there is a recognised difference between sex and gender. Like sex refers to, you know, your biology, uh, your chromosomes, your gametes, all those things, you know, secondary sexual characteristics are involved in that. But then gender is, uh, you know, expression, how you fit into society, how you want to be perceived, how you perceive yourself, etc. But one thing that I'd say and the thing that I've been reading about a lot lately is just the way that there's a lot of misinformation at the moment and things like saying things like sex is binary is itself quite an outdated viewpoint because it's yeah. it's aside from what you think about trans people aside from whether you think they are valid as a, a woman or a man or whatever biological uh up-to-date scientific point of view is is that sex isn't binary it just it just yeah. isn't i've always found sci-fi people to be quite um into these ideas a little bit you know there's a lot yeah. of sci-fi that does yeah so. it's, a, it's a much more play i, I guess because sci-fi is sort of the the realm of ideas and of of ideas sort of taken away from the trappings of reality in a sense so if you're not yeah. so concerned about like sci-fi is a lot about challenging social norms and so or that's that's sort of what brought me to it is that i like that it's very philosophical it's very like what yeah. would this idea be like let's play with this let's let's look at this and let's try and think of it it's all about the future you know a lot of the time it's about thinking yeah. what's in the future so how do we progress what's the next step yeah you're right it's, it is it is philo like there is a lot of philosophy in um science fiction and i think like that's the key isn't it it's like like people that aren't interested in these things generally aren't interested in philosophy they're not interested in like yeah the what if yeah. and the what next of, of, of a of an argument or whatever so so yeah, I mean, obviously there's some absolute shit sci-fi that doesn't... Hey, sure. <laughs> We've just read about um, the boat, which H.G. Wells is calling she, uh, which is pretty... Right. You know, we, we, most people seem to have... Dis there seems to be a big... a big. Um, there's a big consensus yeah. that it seems like boats are female, um, which I, yeah. I thought, oh, I'll have a look at why that is. Um, now It's because they're buoyant. Do you get honestly, like if you Google why are why are boats called she 
you get all of these yeah. sort of things like, oh, because if you look <laughs> after them well, they'll look after you. Or, oh, because they've got a waist and they're surrounded by men. It's like, ah, oh, Jesus Christ. Because they've got a hole in them. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's grim. Oh, well, actually, it's just, it's grammar, isn't it? A lot of languages, English not so much now, but used to use genders all the time in the way that they categorize yeah. words. I mean, like a feminist interpretation of it might be that, you know, um, I don't know, boats or ships are um, a, a, a big investment and yeah. uh, maybe it denotes ownership. I don't know. Yeah, I um, suppose there is that. Yeah, because it's and it's all like and like a lot of engineering stuff is referred to as she, isn't it? Like cars are like, ah, oh, she's yeah. a beauty. That's the only voice yes. that people say it in as well. Um, that's true was that that was like you sounded like someone from Mad Men then yeah, that was yeah, pretty yeah. impressive I, I, it was crazy yeah. I just sort of yeah. felt a business card in my uh, pocket <laughs> as I was saying it, it was, I think in H.G. Wells' defence so we've looked at him being um, kind of racist but not exactly in the past um, he did dabble in eugenics um, but not practically theoretically and then he said right. you know what lads I think this is a bad idea sack it off and he did that like in the late 1800s, which is at least 40 to 50 years before general consensus of eugenics was out. Um, yeah, and that's good. You know, there's, I mean, in terms of like sexual eugenics, there's a lot of that going on at the moment. Sure. So I think he might have been quite ahead of his time. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and he was also, yeah, we'll give him a pass on that. he was big on freedom. Um, you know, he was, he was a keen, uh, keen advocate of women's rights. Um, Cool. He doesn't men- he doesn't mention trans very much um, because I guess at his time it wasn't discussed that much. Like I had a look, um, and the Victorian idea, you know, like when you think back to Victorian England, it's like a very rigid social system. Yeah, and there's this idea of genders being the two spheres of humanity. Yeah, there was there was uh, w- women who lived at home, who made dinner, did the housework, and men went out to work, and then they met only in the morning and the evening this is what i've read this isn't but then like you see that and then actually that's not the case as is so often in victorian times when you dig down into it there's a lot more freedom and a lot more you know there's just individuals living their lives and i found two examples uh of um of sort of transgender people living within the victorian era uh the first one uh was dr james barry who was um a a a famous uh, doctor and surgeon member of the the um royal i think is it the royal medical association um or, sounds right like it sounds fancy doesn't it um yeah it sounds like something uh, who'd done who'd like done some groundbreaking surgeries and that and then when they passed away uh, it was revealed that um whilst they were living as a man they had the body of a woman which apparently was like whoa uh oh yeah i've seen a, a drawing of them I think. yes 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 um so so there's there's that person who uh, but did did have to keep it secret like wasn't openly um but then yeah. there was also which i was reading about um somebody called stella but stella uh, turned up to a musical performance with her friend fanny sorry i just had to do a little laugh at the word at the name fanny then sorry <laughs> well like you could choose it St- stella's mate like oh you're coming with me tonight you can choose any name you want fanny of course yeah. of course <laughs> yeah so they they went to a to a theater together um and were were kicked out of the theater but then um, there's, a, there's a nice ending to it because they were they were um, they were kicked out and arrested. But actually, rather than being publicly shamed and eschewed, um, Stella dyed dyed the hair blonde and became a hit on the music hall scene, be, being a being a, a female performer. Oh, okay, interesting. And that was in 1870, yeah. uh, and and she had a really long career. She she passed away in 1907. From all that time, was really uh, like really well received and really successful. Even even though there's this presumption that the victorian times are very rigid um and very like there's this and there's that actually there's more space there's more realities that existed then yeah it's just i guess like it's just they didn't have the same vocabulary for it and stuff yeah and there's always been like gender variants and stuff and uh people pushing the boundaries on stuff it's always kind of crazy to me to think about people who who have the guts to do that at such a crazy like time period i guess it's all relative they don't know like how crazy their own time period is yeah. like, have you seen gangs of new york no i haven't oh like at the beginning i can't remember what year that's set in, but it's like the past and it? it's like one of those years from the past or whatever well like america <laughs> um, the american past as well like up until they have like even when they do have trains it's old in it i don't know like it's, yeah, it's yeah. cowboys like right until the 50s and then it's not yeah that's my that's my american history yeah in gangs of new york 
there's a bit at the beginning it's just a passing statement but it's like they're looking around the five points in new york and they're showing like all the different districts and like the different gangs that exist and he's explaining to him he's like this is them this is this racist term this is them and then he goes like and he goes and over there's the he she's and you see like this like like harem of like um what we, we would now call like uh, transgender women but like they're like essentially like transgender um sex workers yeah. but they're like it's in history books like they do exist yeah, yeah, yeah. and like um they just didn't have the language for it, it was just a different it was he she's back then <laughs> <laughs> bring it back i say yeah i was gonna say which do you prefer which is uh yeah definitely it's definitely he she yeah. i love that i'll set up a change.org petition we'll, uh, <laughs> thank you no i do what i can <laughs> Thanks. You're an ally. Yeah, thank you. That's all I've ever wanted. And so uh, I've got a little a little quiz. I've called it Trans Terrestrial Icon. Oh, that's a nice name. Cool. I've got some I've got some famous Martians from pop culture that uh, I thought we could we could have a have a whether we think they are a, a trans icon. Do we think that they're like you know do we do we think that they they pushed forward trans rights or not? I can't wait. So, Marvin the Martian. Yes, Marvin the Martian, definitely. I would, I would give Marvin the Martian a strong uh, seven on, on that. Like, he's definitely, okay. definitely on the spectrum somewhere. Um, the, tr- the trainers okay. are, they're very now. You know, it's like the, the look, yes. I'd say the look is very, it's very much, um, it's very much what, it's an aspirational trans person look, you know. It's, it's kind of got a bit of both. Yeah, bit of both, I get bit it. High femme and low femme at the same time. There's, I, I'm not sure about the helmet. I have to say, I don't like the like the sweeping thing. <laughs> but yeah, though no, I like it. I, I like Marvin. All right, we're keen on Marvin. Keep him in. Uh, okay, next. Bit of a stress head though, isn't he? Like he's a bit like he's a bit <laughs> he's like. <laughs> I can't do it, but. That's all I've got. Yeah, That's my... <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Marvin the Martian. All right. I feel like Marvin the Martian sounds like how. Um, he sounds like how right-wing people think we sound. <laughs> this is the future the left want. <laughs> it's Marvin yeah. the Martian. <laughs> yeah. this, mean, this means war. That's, all. That's just Fuzzy Bear, isn't it? That's that voice. Is exactly. Fuzzy Bear. Well, I like Fuzzy Bear. It's okay. I like Fuzzy. Uh, okay, next one. E.T. Oh, E.T. Um, I have no well, idea. Obviously... Well, you've seen E.T., right? Yeah, sure. You've seen it. Um, so on the one hand, E.T., he did engage in some cross-dressing, but it wasn't his choice. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was, yeah, it wasn't his choice. Um, What's-her-name uh, did it? Um, Drew Barrymore. Um, I, he also likes beer quite a lot, which is, which is fine. Anyone can like beer, but he, I don't know, he likes it a bit too much. You know, <laughs> trans women don't really drink it. But they didn't. They 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 weren't against being dressed up as a as a, as a lady in the tea party. No, well, they weren't in the tea party. Uh, oh, sorry, <laughs> the tea party. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, the Republican Tea Party. Uh, <laughs> yeah. E.T. Party. That's uh, it a mistake. I'd love it if E.T. became their like <laughs> their lo- their like little um you know the donkey or the elephant is E.T. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know about E.T. I I've always viewed E.T. as just like. <sighs> like almost like a sexless yeah, little yeah, baby yeah. right like he's just a dumb little baby like that's that if that's his gender that's his gender like he's just a dumb little yeah, baby dumb little baby um take that E.T. yeah he's dumb i hate you stupid <laughs> i do I, <laughs> that's how i would have reacted if he did turn up my dog, like, just something chucking a ball at you <laughs> out of a shed yeah fuck off you dumb baby oh no I'm, Got to look after this dumb little baby. <laughs> Get out. He's all right, but I'm going to say no. Yeah. I'm going to say E.T. doesn't know. Yeah. E.T. is like a, a two, well, two out Although, I would say, like, credit to the scientists that um, Elliot and everyone in the film was all like, he, at every moment, they decided, the ge- they'd, they'd decided uh, E.T.'s gender for him. Um, and then the scientists yeah. never did that. They And even when they caught, caught him for experiments, they weren't, their first question wasn't right. Let's find out whether this this reproduces. You know, they were just interested in his heart. So yeah, and it's like grey skin, yeah. like when he's like dying and that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and there are lines in it that are exactly like that. On there's like Elliot, where he's like, "No, it's a he's a boy or whatever." Yeah. Um, I think ET. I think ET is whatever you want ET to be. Like ET is. Guess what ET does is highlight the uh, presumptions of. Um, 
who they're with. You know, like Elliot turns out is super. And I suppose like how old how old Elliot? What eight, ten, that sort of age? Where yeah, when like he first goes to school, because I, I find that with kids, like up until before they go to school, they're not that bothered about like gender gender norms. And then as soon as they go to school, it seems like it gets really hammered in. Yeah, definitely. I mean, school is such a is such a gendered place, and also. It's kind of what happens with race as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Uh, not that the two are intrinsically related, but it's just it's with school, you know, like they say a lot of uh, little kids like just don't even think about it or they don't really even consider it until they're in an environment where it's like, oh no, like we're different and what does that mean sort of thing. The xenomorph from Alien. No, um, very, 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 very uh, female and like to the degree of like, like the, like the xenomorph from Alien is a, a turf, a gender critical feminist. It's like, <laughs> it's, it really is. It's like, um, I am a woman, born a woman, adult human, female. <laughs> that's like, this is the yeah, vibes I that I that. get from it. Like, not, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. not to say that's what they look like, but just to say that this, 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 this I'd say like the, the, sure. the, the veracity of them. Yeah, absolutely. The way they I operate. And, and, and like, like J.K. Rowling is like their queen. <laughs> and like, she, she's like the big one in the second one. <laughs> yeah. And they're all off doing their, doing their dirty deeds, trying to, trying to get them. Trying to implant your idea, implant their eggs down yeah. your neck. So I don't like it if, I don't, I don't think the xenomorph would like it if I said they were anything other than, than strictly biologically female. So that, that's, that's what they are. I don't want to get on the wrong side of the xenomorph. I've got some terrible news for you. Uh, so apparently Ridley Scott came out and explained uh, the biology, which was um, what he said is, no, I think it's a hybrid. I think it could be either, explained Scott. The next thing is, could he re-evolve himself? So I don't understand why, why the, in Ridley Scott's explanation, they've, they've gone, the xenomorph can be either, like they can change gender, um, and then has decided, no, I'm going to refer to it as he, but fine. <laughs> Certain insects are hermaphrodites. Insects can be hermaphrodites. Animals maybe can. It's interesting. It's interesting because I guess like it depends, you know, this is where I expose that maybe I am a little oh, bit yeah, more yeah. of a nerd than I let on. Um, if you go off of, like the HR Geiger stuff and like look at all of that, like, like, you know, I would say that it's quite clearly like feminine entity, right? Or it's, yeah. it's like definitely wrapped up in his own like sexuality and like weird shit that he's into and, and all these other things. So um, I guess you could say it's a he based on the fact that it like goes out and like tries to do things for the queens. There's more like an ant oh, sort of system going on. I don't know. Um, it's scary. Yeah. I know. I know that it's one of like it's one of the best alien yeah, designs. I, uh, um, I like alien. I like aliens. I like aliens. Good. Good. Um, you maybe you made me think about that. I'm not sure now. Maybe I've changed my viewpoint on um, on this alien xenomorph. I'm just, you know, just keep your options open. That's all. <laughs> yeah, it's not very progressive of me to. Um, that's what this quiz has taught me, actually. I think something here. Fucking hell! <laughs> Congratulations, you taught me not to, uh, not to judge a book by its cover. Yes, that'll that that this quiz where I asked you to judge books by their cover has taught you <laughs> not to do the very thing I was asking all along. Thank <laughs> you very much. <laughs> <laughs> She was steaming at such a pace that in a minute she seemed halfway between the steamboat and the Martians, a diminishing black bulk against the receding horizontal expanse of the Essex coast. Sounds like an average dad on holiday by the Essex coast. Oi oi! Uh, okay, I'll stop this now, I'm sorry. Suddenly, the foremost Martian lowered his tube and discharged a canister of the black gas at the ironclad. It hit her larboard side and glanced off in an inky jet that rolled away to seaward, an unfolding torrent of black smoke from which the ironclad drove clear. To the watchers from the steamer, low in the water and with the sun in their eyes, it seemed as though she was already among the Martians. They saw the gaunt figures separating and rising out of the river as they retreated shoreward, and one of them raised the camera-like generator of the heat ray, he held it pointing obliquely downward, and a bank of steam sprang from the water at its touch. It must have driven through the iron of the ship's side like a white-hot iron rod through paper. Ah, well, that sounds like the end of that, but uh, it sounds fun, fun while it lasted, wasn't it? Anyway, where are we? All right, screaming for death. Here we go. A flicker of flame went up through the rising steam, and then the Martian reeled and staggered. In another moment, he was cut down, 
and a great body of water and steam shot high into the air. Well, at least the Thunderchild took a Martian down with it. That's my motto. If you're going down, drag somebody with you. The guns of the Thunderchild shouted through the reek, going off one after the other, and one shot splashed the water high close by the steamer, ricocheted towards the other flying ships to the north and smashed a smack to matchwood. But no one heeded that very much. At the sight of the Martians collapsed, the captain on the bridge yelled inarticulately. And all the crowded passengers on the steamer's stern shouted together. And then they yelled again. Thor, surging out beyond the white tumult, drove something long and black, the flames streaming from its middle parts, its ventilators and funnels spouting fire. She was alive still! The steering gear, it seems, was intact and her engines working! Go on, Thunderchild, that's Earth 2! Martians, let's not count. She headed straight for a second Martian and was within a hundred yards of him when the heat ray came to bear. Then, with a violent thud and a blinding flash, her decks, her funnels leaped upward. The Martian staggered with the violence of her explosion and in another moment the flaming wreckage, still driving forward with impetus of its pace, had struck him and crumpled him like a thing of cardboard. My brother shouted involuntarily. Involuntarily! A boiling tumult of steam hid everything again. Two! Yelled the captain. Hey, I was going to say that. Get your own aside, captain. Everyone was shouting. The whole steamer from end to end rang with frantic cheering that was taken up by one and then all in the crowding multitude of ships and boats that was driving out to sea. The steam hung upon the water for many minutes hiding the third Martian and the coast altogether. And all this time the boat was paddling steadily out to sea and away from the fight. And when at last the confusion cleared, the drifting bank of black vapour intervened, and nothing of the Thunderchild could be made out. Nor could the third Martian be seen. But the ironclads to seaward were now quite close and standing in towards shore past the steamboat. The little vessel continued to beat its way seaward, and the ironclads receded slowly towards the coast, which was hidden still by a marbled bank of vapour, part steam, part black gas, eddying and combining in the strangest way. The fleet of refugees was scattering to the northeast. Several smacks were sailing between the ironclads and the steamboat. After a time, and before they reached the sinking cloud bank, the warships turned northward, and then abruptly went about and passed into the thickening haze of evening southward. The coast grew faint, and at last indistinguishable amid the low banks of clouds that were gathering about the sinking sun. Then suddenly out of the golden haze of the sunset came the vibration of guns, and a form of black shadows moving. Everybody struggled to the rail of the steamer and peered into the blinding furnace of the west, but nothing was to be distinguished clearly. A mass of smoke rose slanting and barred the face of the sun. The steamboat throbbed on its way through an interminable suspense. The sun sank into the grey clouds, the sky flushed and darkened, the evening star trembled into sight. It was deep twilight when the captain cried out and pointed. My brother strained his eyes. Something rushed up into the sky out of the greyness, rushed slantingly upward and very swiftly into the luminous clearness above the clouds in the western sky. Something flat and broad and very large that swept round in a vast curve, grew smaller, sank slowly and vanished again into the grey mystery of the night. And as it flew, it rained down darkness upon the land. End of book one. You know, we spend so much time asking where the narrator is. We never ask how the narrator is. So this is my song to him. From the point of view of, of him. Had a real tough time. We've had a real tough time. It's been a real time and it's been tough. We've had a real tough time. There's been a lot on our plate. There's been a lot on our plates Our plates have been there with a lot on them We've had a lot 
the end of book one the coming of the martians i think it's fair to say the martians have come no innuendo please thank you so much for listening to the first series of the podcast i've had an amazing time making this i'm really proud of the work and also i'm so happy that people are enjoying it i'm so glad that you're listening along so thank you so much for making this feel so much more worthwhile than it could have been which the reality is it's me in my garage in a soundproofed cupboard uh, reading reading an old book um, so thank you for making me feel less insane for that or perhaps enabling me so uh, I mean either or really in it like I said we're going to take a break of a few months as we prep everything for series two because I want that to be coming out weekly rather than uh, every other week as we've had for for these for these podcasts here a big thank you to Jen for being on the show if you enjoyed her which how could you not have she is a delight she is a joy you can go to her website which is jenives.net she's at jenivescomedian on twitter she has a youtube channel where she puts all the videos up if you're missing your war of the worlds content i mean there's loads of adaptations you can go and read but here's a, some a few that i'd recommend uh, the league of extraordinary gentlemen comics not the film the comics are very good that's by alan moore and uh, and and they've got the, the the book two of them has has war of the worlds in it which is really cool they really bring it in in a decent way i've been watching the fox series of war of the worlds as well um i mean i've been watching a lot of war of the worlds adaptations too much war of the worlds adaptations some may say uh, and the fox series looks really good it's it's sort of it's an updated version but it's across the world a good way of updating it but feeling in the spirit of what the book's about so that's my recommendation and also here's a mad one that i've not i don't know if i am gonna read it i, I think no i definitely i'm gonna read it but marvel comics um did did a war of the worlds thing but they didn't like so you'd think oh right uh marvel war of the worlds well it's probably just going to be a graphic illustration of the book in it because there are those they do exist it's not that though what it is 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 they've got a character called kill raven who's like a post-apocalyptic 2040 something i think is like you know it's like future in the 80s 70s it was like future man post-apocalyptic wasteland kill raven and he has to fight the martians because uh so the thing is right if he's in the the 20 like past 2000s that's been like over 100 years since the book right so the martians are actually coming with antique weaponry if it's the same tripods which from what i can see from the covers it is all i can say is i'm really looking forward to doing a deep dive on it guys and i for one look forward to the martians becoming integrated into the mcu simon guerrier who was a guest on here has done some great documentaries on hg wells that you can see um you can get one of them on iplayer and you can also see another one on the doctor who dvd of the arc he's also written some doctor who script if you're after some podcast have a look at the guys on here you know josh jones did dead Dr- does dead drama which is your history fix um, the guys from Potter Vision do a Potter Vision podcast where they look at the Harry Potter books. Bennett Kavner, who was on last time, has a role-playing game. There's loads. Look in the show notes. There's very clever beans that I'm so lucky to be able to work with. Also, Frank's got that mask album. How could I forget that? That's great. And the Lawman podcast, of course. And also, Ross Briley has a show where they talk about racing tips, if that's your bag. Lastly, thank you so much. Please do 
subscribe, rate and write a little review. Tell your friends, share it about on social media, let everyone know, especially now that you can binge the whole first series of it, just in time to get yourself ready for the second one. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, it's all edyhurst, or get in touch with me on Gmail, which is eddiehurst at gmail.com. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, please take care. Who knows what the next few months are going to bring to us, but we do know that we're going to see Earth Under the Martians. But in the in the book. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I hope not. I mean, haven't we had enough of a time with 2020? We don't need, we don't need the Martians coming now. Not like this. It's like when a friend comes over and your house is a bomb site, and you never really thought that you cared how messy your house was, but then for some reason, when they're there, you're like, oh, God, I don't want them to think I'm a bum. That's what it'd be like when the Martians arrive, I imagine, unless they're coming with heavy firepower, in which case there's probably uh, bigger fish to fry. I'll see you soon, guys. Please take care. Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds is created and produced by Eddie Hurst, written by H.G. Wells and Eddie Hurst. Thank you this week to Jen Ives. Follow her at Jen Ives Comedian on Twitter and Instagram. All music this episode written by Eddie Hurst, except for our fabulous theme tune by Ichabod Wolf, The Fall of Saigon. See you for book two, guys. Bye!